Uh, hey, Church, Jason here uh, with my dear friend, Ken Oaks, and I'm very excited for you to uh, take advantage of the conversation that we're going to share in this episode. Uh, I'm even more excited for the class that Ken's going to offer for our church during Lent, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, but before we get there, I'd love for you to get to know Ken a little bit. So Ken Oaks, uh, professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, um, tell us a little bit about what brought you to South Bend and what you're doing before then. Yes, so I, uh, I grew up in Orange County, California. And I, when I was growing up in, in Orange County, California, people would want to study abroad or, or move abroad or travel abroad. And I thought, why would anyone want to leave this place? <laughs> but that came back to, uh, to bite me in the fact that I did my master's degree in Evanston, Illinois. That was my first big transition to a place that has seasons and yeah. prepared me a little bit for, for, for living here in Indiana. And then I wanted to do... Um, a couple different topics in theology, and a good place for me to go to do those topics was the University of Aberdeen, mm. which is in Scotland, founded in 1492. They're That's very, a long time. They're very proud of that, so um, I remember <laughs> it because they often mentioned it. So yeah. I, at the University of Aberdeen, I was, I was studying my things and also just um, seeing the world, enjoying the world, mm -hmm. and I spent seven years all in all in Scotland. I, I did my PhD in theology there. And then I worked as an adjunct professor, primarily in the philosophy department, mm -hmm. did do some theology classes. And then after that, I had a, um, a, a research position at the University of Tübingen. Tübingen. So I just kept on going east from <laughs> Orange right. County to Evanston mm -hmm. to Scotland and then to Germany. So I spent two years in Germany. Uh, and I got to experience some of the German academic system, and I got a, a daily reminder of how poor my German was. <laughs> so I think that was probably good for me, just to sand down some of my own narcissism, <laughs> is just to understand uh, and to be very aware of how go, dog, go my, 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 my German was. So seven years in Scotland doing some theology, doing some teaching, mm -hmm. a bit more theology in Germany. And then a position came up at the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And so that's what brought me, brought me back west was a position in the, in the theology department, uh, a research position again. And I was here for three years at the, um, doing, doing more research, doing more writing, doing more translating. And then about seven years ago, um, I joined the faculty, the theology faculty at Notre Dame. So I've been here in Indiana for about 10 years and the past seven years as a, as, a, as, a, as a teacher, as a professor in the theology department at Notre Dame. Nice. You, um, uh, among other things, you uh, have specialized in the work of a theologian named Karl Barth. Uh, not everybody will know who that is or why he would be interesting. What drew you to him? And how, like, how would you begin to describe your work with his work? Yes. Yeah, so he is um, perhaps one of the most influential and also one of the um, most uh, well-published uh, European Protestant the theologians of the 20th century. And his work was really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One was the time period, because Bard is seen as sometimes being the transition from 19th century Protestant European theology into 20th century Protestant European theology. Um, he had to deal with World War I. He had to deal with World War II. He had to deal with the rise of the National Socialists in Germany. And then at the very end there, he, he died in 1968, so we're starting to see the, the rise of the 60s. So I think this is just a really fascinating time within, within Protestant European theology. And then I also have interests in 20th century Roman Catholic theology. Mm. And 
just as exciting and interesting as, as Bart's life was. So there's a, a host of Roman Catholic theologians that I was really fascinated, fascinated into. And here these were more uh, sort of French, Swiss, and German theologians. And so um, there was just a, it was a really nice um, combination of some different interests I had that happened to be in the same place. So, yeah, so technically I do, like, European 20th century Protestant and Roman Catholic theology. That's kind of what my, what would be on my name tag. Yeah, <laughs> nice, nice, good. Yeah. Uh, and friends, as you're listening, uh, what's kind of fun for me about this is that might be as much as I've ever gotten Ken to talk about his actual uh, academic background. Uh, one thing I actually love and really respect about you, Ken, is... Um, the way that that work and passion coexist for you alongside um, a lot of our conversations delve more into psychology and trauma and personal history. And um, whenever you talk about your students, I hear you speak of them with really profound compassion. And um, there's actually something quite pastoral about your, uh, your stance in the world. And um, this all makes me excited for the fact um, that there's a course that you've been teaching for a number of years now on campus at Notre Dame uh, that you're going to offer a version of for our church during Lent, which is why we're all, uh, featuring this conversation right now. Uh, what's the name of the course? So the name of the course is God Suffering Evil. <laughs> Those that sounds that sounds heavy. That sounds pretty intense, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Um, um, I think the relatives of my students will, will ask them, "Why are you taking the, Why are you taking a course called God Suffering Evil?" Yeah. Or I wanted to suggest somewhat the sort of the the drama and the seriousness of the topic yeah. in the title itself, and yeah. perhaps as a way to both intrigue students and also to perhaps to signal to them that we're going to try to be really honest with what we know and what we don't know and how we respond to very complex questions. Mm. Uh, why did you decide specifically that you would offer a course on these things? The problem of evil has has um, long been a uh, a concern of mine, and the problem of evil is uh, dealing with how do we think about or how do we reconcile uh, three beliefs that uh, that many people have. How do we reconcile the fact that um, we believe in a in a holy good God, or believe in a in, a, in an omnipotent God, or a, or a, or a holy powerful God? And then also with the fact that evil exists. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a, a perennial, long-standing conversation between uh, philosophers and theologians about how do we make sense of these things? The fact that many people claim that God is good, that God is omnipotent, and that evil exists. And this has been um, one of the most powerful arguments for atheism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I assume that um, many people, in including myself, have, have listened to these arguments and think, okay, this is a, a very serious argument that's, that, that's, that's worth engaging. And um, that, was, that has been a, a long-standing intellectual question of mine. But also then the, the notions of suffering and evil just so readily lend themselves to, um, to our personal or spiritual lives. And so this has also then just a, uh, been a long-standing question of mine, uh, just uh, looking around the world and wondering why things are the way that they are and why would a good and omnipotent God allow these things. So I think it strikes both at, our, um, at some very profound intellectual issues, but also at some very profound spiritual existential issues. Yeah, I think um, you know some listening will quickly resonate with the analy analytical intellectual question there because it, it's, it's a real conundrum, honestly. Um, and I think it's something worth taking seriously. Um, and then at the personal level, even if somebody perhaps hasn't had those thoughts with those words, um, I think most of us have probably had moments where 
whether it was something in the world at large or something in our own life or story or in the lives of those we love, where um, a hard thing comes along and it can rattle your faith, it can sort of shake your equilibrium. And um, I think it's interesting that, you know, people may not realize this, but a lot of really thoughtful theologians for like the history of our, of our theologizing, right. Um, have, have brought really interesting and and rich perspectives to this. Um, uh, I've heard you mention movements like process theology or death of God theology. People may not know what those are, but those are examples of the fact, right. That, that people wrestling with these questions have allowed these questions to really shape their understanding of the nature of God and how we relate to God. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're, you've offered this course on campus uh, for a number of years now. Yes, that's right. Um, would you mind um, sort of taking us through the the movements of this course? Um, and friends, as you're listening, um, we've, we've worked together to kind of take what is a, what, like a full semester course on campus and kind of whittle that down into something accessible uh, to offer during Lent, during the seven weeks or the seven Thursdays that'll be available to us during Lent. So as Ken talks about it, you're going to kind of get the flyover and then maybe a little bit later we'll talk more about the detail on what's being offered. But like, what happens in this course? Yeah, so I wanted to provide a course that I thought would be helpful to a variety of students in a variety of life circumstances with a variety of questions. So we deal with the the quote-unquote problem of evil, this kind of philosophical, analytical problem. But I thought, you know, many people might have different types of concerns. So in addition, we we actually begin the course by doing some trauma theory. Mm. We read uh, Judith Herman's Trauma and Recovery, which is simply a landmark of trauma studies. And so uh, we begin with that book also to perhaps suggest or indicate to the students that we're going to try to really be grounded when we talk about suffering, not simply be, not simply let it be intellectual. Yeah. Let me, and let me interrupt you there. Cause I forgot to do this at the beginning. Uh, but I should say that as we move through this conversation, there may be some things that you um, bring to the conversation uh, that really uh, touch on some uh, really hard personal experiences for people. And so just a note, as we move further into this, um, that that's part of the subtext of all this. And so uh, it might come up here and um, if that's going to be hard for you, maybe you want to pause the episode and come back to it at a time where you feel like you'd like to move into that conversation with us. Uh, sorry, disclaimer over, uh, keep going. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I also am aware that my students might have, might come from many different faith traditions or no faith tradition at all. Um, and, and they might be struggling with the faith that they inherited. So I thought, let's just do some pure psychology at the beginning and we end with the recovery part of Judith Herman's trauma and recovery. And I think what's really fascinating about, about dealing, with, um, dealing with trauma theory is that in as much as we have the same nervous system that's trying to keep us safe, that's trying to keep us aware of our surroundings, that's trying to help us in all these different ways, that in, um, in traumatic events and in response to them, we can really see the nervous system at its, at its most extreme. Mm. But what we can begin to notice is that there would be medium forms of some of these reactions or mild forms of some of these reactions. And so as we deal with trauma theory and with Judith Herman's conceptualization of it, we talk about things like hyperarousal, just feeling kind of permanently alert mm. or feeling like our heart rate's up or feeling like we're a little bit sort of scattered. We talk about intrusion, just the experience of sometimes we have thoughts or we have um, things people have said of us or we have images or events that just kind of re- recur in our mind once again and we're just sort of living our lives. These things can re- these things can return. We also deal with the phenomenon of constriction, which is very common for people to kind of um, 
live a, a, a more narrow and depleted and somewhat sort of protected life after traumatic events. And so as we deal with these very common symptoms like hyperarousal, like intrusion, like constriction, I hope that it gives students like some language for these things that might, that might actually help them as well. And I think what's really powerful about giving people language for their own experiences is that it can make them feel less alone and they can establish commonality when we return to Judith Herman's work at the, at the very end of the semester and we deal with how she conceptualizes the process of recovery, for her, like the third and kind of continuing stage of recovery uh, is commonality mm-hmm. and is really finding commonality with other people. And so one of my hopes is that as students read through trauma theory, if some of this can apply to them, they can, they can feel less alone or feel like there's less like something's wrong with them. And they can see, oh, um, people tend to have very sort of common reactions. And so it's not something to be ashamed of or to be hidden. But this is a part of what it means to sort of be together as human and to sort of talk about some, um, some things that we might not uh, rarely talk about or have, or have much language for. This is so good, especially, I think, because um, churches can be places that, on the one hand, uh, exacerbate a lot of harm. I think, mm. right, when we kind of ignorantly speak uh, about people's experiences, when we leverage uh, maybe the wrong kinds of theologies or harmful theologies uh, from the pulpit or in our conversations. And then conversely, what a beautiful opportunity that churches could be spaces that sort of uh, avail themselves of some of this wisdom and fold it in and, and then become sort of um, an ally for some of that healing process in community. Um, People may not know this, but is it fair to say, so there's, there's trauma studies, which is a growing field. Well, this kind of goes back to the seventies, I think, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of a modern um, discovery, uh, but there's sort of some burgeoning conversations at the intersection of trauma and theology and, and Christian scripture. Uh, can you give us a little bit of like visibility toward what's going on in that space in the current moment that's happening like academically and culturally. Yeah, so there have been uh, there have been theologians who have been looking at trauma theory, and more recently also at, at moral injury, which is a, a somewhat somewhat later addition to to trauma theory. But there's been theologians who have been interested in psychology, both at the at the theoretical level and also at the clinical level, and they have been trying to use trauma theology or theories of of moral injury to talk about uh, stories in the Bible, or to talk about events within um, perhaps. Uh, Christian history, or even perhaps in terms of some of the pressing issues that that, that we're dealing with now. So there have been uh, theologians who have written some on, um, and the, uh, this is a little bit sort of less specifically trauma, but more just in terms of intense forms of suffering that we might actually sort of call traumatic in some in some circumstances. But theologians have done interesting work as well on uh, reproductive loss, such as miscarriage and fertility and stillbirth. Theologians are thinking about um, dementia and how to care for people with dementia. Theologians have been perhaps writing a bit more about uh, their own personal reflections about loss. And I think that this is, um, I think that that, that the trauma theory is, is sort of one way in which we can begin to sort of think really hard and to think really deeply about how Christians might might, might, might think about suffering. Uh, another good example, Church, is if you were around or if you listened on the podcast to Beth Grable's conversation with Carl Hetler about homelessness, uh, Carl pointed out that there's this uh, protocol known as ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, mm-hmm. and that um, you know Carl uh, runs point for the city of South Bend on issues related to homelessness. And Carl was just pointing out that um, uh, a very disproportionate number of people experiencing homelessness score really high mm-hmm. on those childhood traumatic experiences. 
and it's such a, a helpful insight, right? It moves us toward compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, it moves us toward understanding. And that's, you know, maybe a good example of South and City Church uh, trying to do the work to become more informed in these things because it's part of loving well, I think, ultimately, right? And, and it's part of being together in a way that's healing rather than harmful, right? I think that's right. Um, so one, one, one interesting um, side effect of dealing with suffering is that when we see um, how and why and under what conditions people suffer, then it really gives us an insight into what it would mean to care for someone. Mm. Because the flip side of suffering would be would be care. Mm. And the flip side of suffering would be flourishing. So even a lot of these constructs that we deal with in these um, in these in these somewhat um, uh, in, in these fairly tragic circumstances, they inversely give us a window mm-hmm. in, in, into what care might look like, into what well-being might look like, into what flourishing would look like as well. Yeah. So uh, so you do some uh, trauma and psychology work. Tell us about other threads that are woven into the class. Yeah. So another, we spend um, a decent amount of time looking at the book of Job. Mm. The book of Job, I think, is a treasure yes. of world literature. Yeah. And I love that book so much. And one of my one of my proudest accomplishments is when students really love that book mm. after the class as well. And the Book of Job is um, a very difficult book. Many of my students who um, who encounter it will say, "Doctor Oaks, um, I dealt with this book in Foundations. I dealt with this book in another one. What do you have to tell me about yeah. the Book of Job?" Yeah. And like, uh, I, I dare you, I dare you to show me something. And many of them are surprised at what exactly is in that book. Um, mm. It's a very fascinating book. And one of the things that that I find so fascinating about it, and perhaps is one of the easier things to understand about it, is the attention given to how religious people talk about suffering. Mm. So some of my students, um, they'll say, oh, I've read the book of Job. Well, I tried to read it. I started to read it. And Job's friends seem... Job's friends seemed mean, mm. and they seemed grumpy, and so I stopped reading it. Yeah, yeah. But if you get to the end of the book, you'll see that one of the main messages of the book of Job is that Job's friends are wrong. Yes. And Job's friends are accusatory. Job's friends make all this meaning as to why these, these calamities have, have befallen Job. And this is a very common thing that people deal with uh, even today is... Um, how we begin to make sense or even theological sense of, of calamities or of tragedies. So we spend some time with the, uh, with the book of Job, which I think is a beautiful poetic book. And what's also really fascinating is that it's Job dealing with the loss of his children. Mm. And I think just how common, like, like how common is this type of loss? And how common would this type of loss been in antiquity? Yes. And how would yeah. people make sense of this? And the, you know, the, the insinuation of Job's friends is, Job, you must have done something wrong. Yeah. Confess. Yeah. Tell us. Yeah. And um, psychologists will call this the just world fallacy, mm. but it's already just there in the book of Job. So we spend some time on the book of Job. We also spend some time dealing with uh, Christian theologians who have dealt with particular kinds of suffering. And I mentioned this earlier, but we read... We read on Christians making sense of reproductive laws, such as mis, um, infertility, miscarriage, and stillbirth, equally um, profoundly common, profoundly tragic, and profoundly common. So we see Christian theologians kind of leaving behind the big why questions and just saying, in the face of these realities, mm. what do the Christian traditions have in terms of practices, in terms of stories, in terms of images, in terms of figures, in terms of traditions? So how is it that Christians actually begin to think in response to these realities that are already present? 
So we also spend some time with um, John Swinton, who deals with um, dementia. Mm. How, how, how might Christians think about people with dementia and care for people with dementia? We spend some time with Nicholas Waltersdorf, who was a Christian philosopher, a famous, analytic, very sophisticated Christian philosopher. But um, unfortunately, he had a 25-year-old son who passed away. Mm. And so we read this Christian philosopher, uh, just very personal, aphoristic, raw, honest reflections as he, as he thinks about the loss of his son with his, uh, or through his Christian faith. We also uh, read a theologian named James Cone. We read parts of his book, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, in which here he wants to consider and consider how um, sort of two realities might relate. He says, on the one hand, uh, Christianity, the essential symbol of Christianity is a, is, a, is a symbol of a man suffering. It's a man suffering, being put to death by the state, and being hung on a tree. And this was supposed to be a shameful death, uh, a humiliating type of death, and it was done by Romans who were occupying Jerusalem. And then James Cone wants to say, well, if that's, the, if that's the essential symbol of Christianity is the cross, well, he wants to say that one of the quintessential symbols of, of black suffering in the United States has been the lynching tree. Mm. And he spends a lot of time looking at the parallels between the cross and the lynching tree. And when you begin to think about the parallels, it's quite striking mm. uh, how, how, um, how, similar the, how similar these are. So we also deal some with, uh, with, with the history of... Um, of, uh, of black suffering in the United States through, through, through the lens of the lynching tree. And then... Um, uh, Ken, I've also heard you mention that in Cohn's work, he's especially interested in, in what black women have done. Is that right? It, kind of in the wake of that experience? Yes, that's right. When he... Um, when, when he, he not simply addresses, let's say, some, some theological reflections upon, upon these realities, but he really wants to highlight the work of um, women of color in the struggle against lynching. And um, these were profound women of faith, profound sort of Christian women, who really saw as their, as their mission, as their vocation, as their calling from God to fight this injustice. And so he spends a lot of time with um, the figure of Ida B. Wells. And mm. so in, in that book, he really wants to um, uh, sort of lift up their voices, see their contributions. And he spends a lot of time even dealing with some of their uh, journals or some of their diaries or some of their letters to really get a, a full three-dimensional look at, uh, at what these women were doing in response to uh, the threat and the reality of the lynching tree. Mm, yeah. Uh, what else? What else is in the course uh, syllabus? Uh, we also deal with hell and heaven hey. somewhat. <laughs> yeah. uh, we deal some with um, Roman, some recent Roman Catholic theology. And then at the end of the course... We try to take a little break from everything. <laughs> so at the at the end yeah. of the course, we uh, we watch some films, mm. and we do that for a couple of reasons. One is because I think that film is one of our like common literatures now. Yes. Um, also, I think at the end of the semester, my students might be cognitively spent, <laughs> yeah. and then um, I also think that it allows us to begin to see just in random films, if any of the themes that we have been talking about in class begin mm. to come out. Yes. And so here we try to do, um, we do a couple of the films. We do uh, the Pixar classic Inside yes. Out. Yeah, uh, which is a profound film. It really is. <laughs> it is a really profound film. And it is very nice as well when my students say, I watched this when I was a child, but mm. I had no idea 
about um, what, what this film was really suggesting to us. And um, one of my heroes is uh, Mr. Rogers, but his full name is Fred McFeely Rogers. <laughs> uh, Did not know that. An ordained Presbyterian minister, and his ordination was to, um, was to do ch- children's television. But one of the things that um, Mr. Rogers or Fred Rogers said, uh, which has really stuck with me, was when he was before um, some senators uh, dealing with the funding for his show. Mm-hmm. And the senators are a little bit skeptical as to how helpful a children's show would be. Mm. But one of the things that Mr. Rogers says is he says, um, and he's almost, it's almost like a plea, but he says, if only we can teach children that emotions are nameable and manageable, mm. we would have done a great deal. And I just love that fact. And if this is true of children, then I think it's true of adults as well. If we can only think that, if, if we can, if our experiences have names for them, if our experiences have, have music for them, that they have commonality, then I think that we, uh, then I think that that's a, a, a great accomplishment. So we do Inside Out to try to talk some about emotions. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, I, I, can't, I can't find this anywhere, but I think Brene Brown said somewhere that most people like only can notice three of their feelings. Are they feeling oh. like mad, bad, or sad? Interesting. So yeah, so most people like we're aware when we're mad, bad, or sad. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't found a study that supports this, <laughs> but it is a kind of interesting way. So some- I feel that Brene Brown these days, she just, what's the word for when the Pope like just dictates something? She just gets to do that now. Ex-cathedra? Yeah, she's speaking ex-cathedra. <laughs> so uh, we watched this children's film, but it's a really profound reflection on, uh, on joy and on sadness. Mm. And in as much as it's a class on suffering, and that movie really is um, the question of that movie really is what to do about sadness. Mm. Yeah, and so yeah. it's a way that we can sort of perhaps um, lean in a bit to our sadness, become aware of it. It's also sort of enjoyable, and there's some really, really interesting parallels between um, loss and joy in there. Yeah. So we, we watch some um, Inside Out. We talk about emotions. We watch Force Majeure to talk about. Uh, a return to trauma theory, all these trauma constructs we've been using. And I, uh, st- I think students feel very sophisticated when we watch a foreign film. Oh, nice. People speak Swedish. <laughs> people speak Norwegian. Uh-huh. And then we finish up with a, a documentary called Life According to Sam, which mm. is a really profound um, reflection on uh, a young man with progeria and what his, um, what his family has done in response. Mm. And Judith Herman has a, uh, a concept called a survivor mission. She says, for many people who have undergone trauma, way, 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 way down the line of recovery, many of them feel called to engage the world in forms of public action. And so this, um, this family of physicians who have a, a, young, a, young, a young son with progeria. What is that, by the way? Progeria is uh, it, it's a very rare genetic condition, but it causes um, very advanced aging. Mm. So um, uh, young people with progeria um, have a very striking, physiological fe- very striking physiological features, and they look um, uh, very aged, even though mentally they're 11, mentally they're 12, mentally they're 13. Mm. And um, it's really, it, because it's a documentary, we really just see some of the things sort of from our class actually happening on the screen. We see perhaps some stages of grief. We see the importance of connection. We see the importance of support. We see uh, the importance of people who have access to resources, being able to use those for others. And it's kind of a, an inspirational, heartwarming tale, but, but, but very poignant. And so Within this class, we try to just have a lens just on all kinds of different things. Mm. And when I've spoken to people about this class, they say, um, 
wow, you can really talk about anything, and it's yes. Yeah. When we talk about God suffering and evil, yeah. we can kind of just talk about anything and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the sort of integrative view that that invokes, I think, right? That we God can be sometimes thought of as this like abstract theological thing, or God is what happens on Sundays at church or whatever. And on the other hand, we have all these like, uh, very real lived experiences that mm. um, may not feel very pious or they're, they're not wrapped in gold. Um, but the the effort to do what I think good faith has always done, good faith, you know, the right kind of faith has always done, which is to look for integration and um, the sort of blessed discovery of, of um, that, that nothing has to be withheld from our life with God and that somehow we can bring these things together. And I hear that in the story that you're telling through the course. Um, one of our mantras at our church is fields, not factories. And if people have heard us talk about it, hopefully you've heard that uh, one of the ways we think about the difference between like a factory spirituality and a field spirituality is that uh, in a factory spirituality, um, it, it tends it, it tends toward basically saying, here's how, here's how faith can help you do what you want to do. Like, like, what can I make happen through faith, right? What levers can I pull through faith, right? Like, um, you know, if I parent the way God wants me to parent, then my kid's going to turn out like this, you know? Um, and I think a lot of us have, have found fault with that approach, but we haven't always known how to name it. And so we're, we're reaching for another kind of spirituality, one that we think um, has a much greater resemblance to the way that Jesus teaches and what happens in scripture. And one of the questions we ask in the field is not what can you make happen, but what do you do with what happens? Because hmm. there's all these conditions that you can't control in the field, right? Life happens, storms happen, droughts happen. Um, and this brings me to uh, uh, a point that I heard from a professor of mine who's a colleague of yours, Brad Malkowski, uh, who teaches world religions. And uh, something he said that stuck out to me was he said, if you want to understand any particular faith or tradition, one question that you could ask of it is, what does it do with suffering? And that that'll really kind of get you into the heart of um, like what's going on and you know notions of God or deity or ultimate reality and human experience. Um, and I really was really moved by that, I think in particular because um, in a story that I won't take time for today, but like uh, to locate God in the story of Jesus and, and like in the, the story of his suffering mm. um, was really very deeply personally healing for me at a time in life when um, my own suffering had created a really profound sense of isolation, alienation, and abandonment. And then this other sort of experience emerged through that encounter. Um, and so I, I say all that to say that, um, so we're, we're offering this course in for our church during Lent. And I wanted to kind of draw some attention to the, what might be a connection there for us. Um, Lent can be a, a season for different things depending on how you approach it. What's clear, right, is it's meant to kind of prepare us for Holy Week and Easter. Uh, it's a season of thoughtfulness and reflection. Uh, sometimes that means, um, you know, perhaps thinking about repentance, like where have we gone astray? Where do we want to kind of come back to what we really believe is most important or true? Um, how do we want to honor God? Um, how do we want to reflect a life that has some kind of harmony with what we've seen in Jesus? Um, but you mentioned uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff and how he says that uh, right there at the center of the Christian story is the suffering of Jesus, right? Um, so this is interesting that we're doing this course during Lent. Can you just reflect for us a little bit on uh, Christianity's complicated relationship with suffering and and what we're doing here during Lent? Yeah, so this has been a um, 
uh, a long-standing question uh, towards Christianity, actually from other religions, is mm. what is it that Christianity says about suffering, and what is it that Christians are supposed to do in response to it? Mm. Um, but that's also been an internal question. So, so Nicholas Waltersdorf, who was uh, a profound Christian philosopher, after in his reflections upon dealing with the loss of his son Eric, uh, he mentioned that. Um, Christianity has a lot to say about sin and faith, mm-hmm. or that he heard, he heard a lot about sin and faith growing up mm-hmm. as a Christian, but he didn't hear so much about suffering. Mm-hmm. And he also says that when he was growing up, he was in a church tradition that um, had many songs of praise and many songs of repentance. <laughs> but he also says, well, where are the songs of lament? Yeah, yeah. And so to be able to sort of begin to think about Christianity not simply through the question of sort of sin, but how to think through Christianity through this through this question of suffering as well, which seems to be a bit a bit harder, a bit a bit more, a bit more nebulous for us. Yeah, I, I wonder if I don't I don't have the I won't claim to have an analysis on like history and all that, but it sure seems to me that at least some part of that to me feels very um, the lack of of consideration of suffering to me feels very kind of American and Western mm-hmm. and sort of upwardly mobile and. Um, and I think, again, I'm really grateful for what you're offering here and what we're going to do in this course, because I think, um, you know, there's versions of faith that lead us to confront reality. And then there's versions of faith that become complicit in our avoidance of it. Mm. And I think um, sometimes that sort of like upwardly mobile faith of sin and repentance and and, and overcoming, um, if we're not careful, it becomes a way of sort of avoiding reality. And... Um, and yet, again, they're at the center of our story, actually, is uh, Jesus' suffering. Mm-hmm. And so um, it seems there's a lot there for us to mine if we choose to take advantage of you know, thousands of years of reflection and, and resource. Um, I, I've told friends before, I don't know if I've ever said this out loud for our church, but one of my discontents personally, like in church, has been that, in fact, uh, theology as a discipline and as a body of work that goes back for thousands of years is so rich and has so many resources to offer. And so little of that, I feel, mm. makes it into the sort of everyday life of a lot of our churches. Um, and I don't think you should have to go get a master's degree in theology <laughs> to avail yourself of these rich resources, right? And so um, so we have this opportunity with this class to uh, avail ourselves of some of that resource um, and to learn together. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the actual class. Sure. Uh, so you're going to be teaching this on Thursday nights at 7 p.m., roughly 90 minutes a night uh, to about 8.30. This will be happening at Studebaker 112 uh, at our current home, uh, even as we prepare to move to the Tribune. It'll be up in room five uh, where the kids, uh, the older kids in our kids' ministry gather on Sundays on the second floor. Uh, if you walk in for the class, you might notice the band is also there rehearsing. So it'll be a rich full night at Studebaker. Um, can we talk a little bit about like what can people expect in terms of like what are they doing in the class and then what are they doing maybe between classes? Is there any, for lack of a better way, like any homework or reflective work that's going to happen uh, at a practical level? What are people going to be doing? Yes, yeah, so I think it's in terms of format to perhaps have something like um, a presentation, a bit of a presentation about a topic, and then a, and then a small break, and then perhaps more personal reflection or, or group discussion about mm-hmm. what we've been talking about. I think that when we move into uh, one of our topics, uh, perhaps um, a bit of sort of just sort of thinking ahead of time in terms of how they might sort of relate to us, and I do think that there will be uh, some uh, some optional readings. 
that um, that I will provide if you want nice. to do that beforehand. But then I also think that I want to spend some time, all of us going together through Nicholas Walterstorff's to Lament for a Son. So I think that in terms of just um, what we're going to be doing in terms of uh, session by session, I think we're going to spend about three or maybe two and a half sessions on the book of Job. But I want to start that by uh, presenting people with this kind of philosophical puzzle of the problem of evil, and then we'll, we'll look at how Job sort of addresses this, this topic of suffering and this topic of evil. So spend some time on Job, but we're going to be doing Job hopefully in some a bit more sort of creative ways, a bit mm. more sort of creative illustrations of the book of Job. And then I think we will be spending... Uh, a, a, a night dealing with um, the history of crucifixion in antiquity mm-hmm. and how that might relate to the history of lynching in the United States. And then um, we will, I think, watch Inside Out. Yeah, and we nice. will talk about uh, joy and fear and disgust mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and sadness. And uh, just as another kind of lens, perhaps, to, th- to sort of think about suffering, because I think there's some really profound reflections there. And then I think we will spend... Um, Two sessions on on Walter Storff's Lament for a Son. It's a it's a very short book. It's more like journal entries than sort of long standing text. And uh, I think that that might be an opportunity then for us to begin to think about some of um, some of our own losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps then perhaps sort of if, if people are willing to sort of um, to discuss how this book might remind us of some of our of our own instances of suffering, or perhaps how it might seem different from our own instances of suffering. So I think that we're going to do some problem of evil, some Job. Uh, and then deal with uh, the cross and the lynching tree, and then uh, inside out, and then um, reading and sort of accompanying and um, thinking alongside, feeling alongside Nicholas Walterstorff as he as he discusses and reflects upon what his faith means um, in terms of the in the context of the, the loss of his son. Yeah. Um, man, I picture the members of our community who are able to take advantage of this. I, I kind of picture us uh, arriving at Good Friday. Uh, which is the day after the, le- the last night that this class will be offered. And I just um, can imagine this journey through Lent bringing us to um, the sort of memory of Good Friday and then the celebration of Easter um, with a deeper grounding in, in some of those themes mm-hmm. and perhaps a, you know, a, a more profound reflection both on our own lives and, um, and on God. And um, uh, I think that'll be really worthwhile for us um, as people who want to keep going deeper into this story mm-hmm. and finding the good and the hope in it. Um, it also strikes me that, you know, I think often, you know, it's, it's like a really fragile hope that like avoids our pain. It's, it's paper thin. Right. Um, but I, my, in my own story, I, I found that like um, turning toward our pain um, with the right help mm. and in the right community that there's a, a much deeper kind of hope waiting for us in that journey. Um, and so like you can never promise the timeline on that, right? You can't force that process. And yet um, without trying to be a salesman for these ideas, I, I do think there's a gift waiting for us in these things. And maybe that's part of the beauty of Lent this year for South and City Church. Yeah, I think I, I think um, there'd be a, sort of a variety of themes. Um, perhaps the most important one is just us being together. Yeah, and then also then uh, we'll talk some about the cross and crucifixion. Yeah, and then we'll talk about um, Walter Swift losing his son, which seems right because for many Christians, uh, God lost God's own son on the cross. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Ken, thank you for doing this. It's going to be a huge gift for our community. Um, yeah. Anything else that you were hoping to uh, make it into our conversation today? 
I don't think so. Nice, great. Church, I will have details available for you. Uh, keep an eye out online and through social media. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing some of you uh, on Thursday nights during Lent at Studebaker 112. Thanks again, Ken. Thanks, Jay.